for me. And sometimes these passages are so lengthy and rich and complicated and involved that it seems like you'll never get on to something different. But we're actually going to conclude this series of messages on fools and wise men. This is the sixth message that actually began at around verse 9 in chapter 1. And so the contrast that we've seen during our study is between what God has declared to be wisdom and what the world recognizes and understands to be wisdom. And there is always this contrast around us. And it is applied most specifically to spiritual things and spiritual truth. If you begin to try to explain to someone who does not know Christ what salvation is and how one can be saved and what they must do in order to be saved, simply by faith, trust in the finished work of Christ, they might look at you and scratch their heads and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand how that could happen. I should have to do something. Isn't that right? Well, no, you don't have to do. You have to believe. And so people don't understand the wisdom of God because their hearts have not been opened, their eyes have been blinded. And so for this Corinthian church, Paul has gone to, great, gone to great lengths to explain to them the distinct difference between the philosophy and the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God as relayed through the work, the person of Jesus Christ. So as we looked at last week, Paul was talking about the work of the wise man. He was the master builder. And as the master builder, his ministry and his teaching was laid upon the one true foundation. And that is the foundation of the person and the work of Christ. It wasn't based upon human philosophy. He didn't have anything else added to it. He would say in the passages that we studied, I preach Christ crucified Period. And so this is what he is imparting to the Corinthians who have sought to add the Greek philosophy, the Greek wisdom to the work of Christ on the cross to make it mean something that it really shouldn't mean or couldn't mean. And so what Paul begins to apply is that he is the master builder building on the foundation of the work of Christ. And the application for you and I is this, is that our lives are going to be built upon a foundation. It is either going to be upon the foundation of Christ or of the world. And what we use to build upon that foundation is either going to be of high quality materials, which Paul referred to as gold, silver, and precious stones, or we are going to build upon that foundation with low quality material, which Paul referred to as wood, hay, and straw. So these materials represent the believer's response to what God has given to them, not materially, but spiritually. It's how well they serve the Lord with what He has given to them. So in other words, our building is our works as a result of the saving grace of Christ and the life that has been changed by this saving grace. We're not saved by what we do, but because we are saved, we do. And so we build on the foundation of Christ. And on the day when we stand before the Lord, what we have built on that foundation will be tested by Him with fire. If it lasts, then we will receive a reward. If it does not last, and we will not inherit this reward, we will not lose our salvation. We just will not receive some of the various crowns that are identified for us in the teaching of Scripture. So Paul identified in this section three kinds of workers. The wise who built on the proper foundation with the best materials. The foolish 
who built on the proper foundation with poor quality materials, and the destructive who built upon the wrong foundation and attempted to tear down the work of the wise builder who was building upon the proper foundation with high quality materials. So Paul brings his discussion on fools and wise men to an end, and he summarizes what he began in 118, which was the significant problem of division within the church. So this passage we're looking at today is divided into two sections, both of which begin with the admonition, let no one. Those are our keys, and so let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Here's what God's Word says to us through the Apostle Paul. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So this is number five in our ongoing outline, and this is the summary of what Paul has said thus far. Number one in our outline today is the call to return to true wisdom. Again, in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So the beginning point of this return to true wisdom is to end self-deceit. Verse 18a, let no one deceive himself. Self-deceit can often be the most difficult obstacle to overcome in our lives. Why? Because man tends to have an incredibly elevated view of himself and very often isn't aware of how he is actually deceiving himself. He, for example, might look upon his intelligence. He might look upon his business acumen. He might look upon the accomplishments that he has been blessed to achieve in his world. He might look at those that admire him. He might look at the amount of money he has in his bank account. And the list can go on and on and on. And if we're not careful, all that man aspires to accomplish... By adopting the ideals and the values of the world, these things can cause us to think that we are wiser than we really are and that we are more accomplished than we actually are. We can be absolutely certain that we are absolutely right about everything all the time, and we can be certain that what we think and what we say and what we do is pure and noble and done with the best of intentions, but we can be absolutely wrong about all of it. Have you had anybody in your life that is certain that they know everything, that they're always right all the time? Do you ever just want to scream and go, come on! Be realistic. You can't know everything about everything and be right all the time. Well, I kind of think that I can. And I don't think that you can prove me wrong. 
(laughs) It gets exhausting. But our world is filled with people who think that way. And I would venture to say that our churches have people who think the same way about themselves. And it may not be all about worldly things. It may actually be about spiritual things. Well, you know, I've read my Bible through 25 times. I read it every year. I follow the Bible reading plan. And I've done some seminary classes. And I've read some of the greatest scholars in all the world. And I don't think you convince me that I'm wrong. Well, this is the problem. The problem is that we become wise in our own eyes. And if we continue to live our lives that way, we fail to submit ourselves to the absolute truth of God's word. And we can be led down a path of deception that we're not obviously certain that we're on. I'm always reminded of this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. And every time I hear someone in the world say this, just follow your heart. I want to go, no, don't follow your heart. Don't do that. It's about the worst thing you can do. Why? Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, the sad reality is, is that I often can't understand my own heart. I certainly can't understand yours. And so we have to be careful and we have to be intentional to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word so that we don't become wise in our own mind and fools in the eyes of God. We cannot understand our own heart. We are in need of God's wisdom to enlighten us to what is actually true. So we must always be certain that we are most certain Now, what we are most certain about is our understanding of what God says, and that alone is our standard for wisdom, it is our standard for virtue, and it is the standard for our belief. If what we think and say and do cannot be clearly supported in Scripture, then we have to question what we think and say and do. Is this a right attitude? Is this a right action? Is this an appropriate belief? I'm not so sure about that. Let me investigate what God's Word says. Let me ask some spiritual people that I know will not lead me astray. And so when we do that, we are more likely to stay on God's path of wisdom than to stay on the world's path of of foolishness. So for the Corinthians, this self-deceit was related to what they believed made them wise, namely the addition of human philosophy and worldly wisdom to how they understood spiritual things. So there is the admonition here to be humble. Verse 18b, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Do the Corinthians think that they are wise? You better believe they do. This is exactly why Paul is addressing them in this way. This is why there are three chapters that deal with the whole subject of wisdom and human philosophy. But their wisdom is from the world. It is filled with human philosophy and human wisdom as it relates to spiritual things. And so human wisdom is useless in matters related to God, to salvation, and to spiritual truth. So here's the problem. If you are wise in your own eyes... 
You might read what the Scripture says about how one must be saved, and you might say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't think I can agree with that. I believe there has to be something more than that. It can't be that simple. I must add something. I must do something. I must believe something. And the problem is when we begin to do that, we become wise in this age and we become fools in the sight of God. So if we're going to become wise, then we have to become foolish so that we understand what God says as it relates to spiritual things. And then we begin to appropriate these truths into our lives in such a way that right belief becomes will turn into right actions from our life. So Paul restates that to be truly wise in spiritual areas and in life in general, we must become foolish, submitting ourselves to the truth of God's Word and not allowing human opinion to deny or alter His perfect revelation to us. Now, the world, and most specifically our enemy, will constantly distort what God has said so that it means something different than what He intends. And the result is that you and I will be deceived. Does this sound familiar? Where did this begin? All the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are there in the garden and the snake slithers up to them and says, eat. And they said, no, God said, God did not say. God said, we would die. You're not going to die. God is depriving you. Now, if you don't believe this is a problem today, explain to me while evangelical Christians can say, I believe it's okay for me to, to engage in an extramarital relationship because I believe God wants me to be happy. I believe God is okay with me divorcing my spouse because God knew this from the beginning. Otherwise, He wouldn't have allowed us to become married. And God knows that life is too short and I am entitled to and I deserve better than this. Does this happen in our church today? Sadly, it does. And so we always have to be on guard. We always have to be aware of how subtly the world and our enemy can deceive us and the believing that God's Word doesn't mean what it says. And we need to add some kind of insight or philosophy so that it's relevant to today. Because after all, the Bible's old and archaic and it's outdated and it's filled with tradition. All kinds of things I don't understand. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to set aside this stuff that doesn't make any sense. So I'm just going to listen to what other people say and I'm going to trust that the result will be good for me. Well, Paul says if that's your way you live your life, then you're a fool. That's what God says. So the path of spiritual wisdom begins with the Word of God. Our pre-converted life... Our lives before Christ is filled with and saturated by the world's corrupt ideas and desires, but God has provided a cure, and that is through the transforming power of His Word. Romans 12, 2, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Why would we allow ourselves to be conformed to the world? Because we're not as wise as we think we are, and we aren't always as aware that we are being conformed in the way that we are. So, the reality here in our passage is this. We are to put an end to self-deceit. We are to be humble because God is the one that determines true wisdom. Verse 19a, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. You can stack up the greatest thinkers, the greatest philosophers, the smartest people in all the world, and God says that they are fools before me if they reject my wisdom through Christ on the cross. As Paul has already clearly stated, the cross of Christ is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And what the world considers wisdom, God considers to be foolish. So the question is this, who are we going to listen to and whose opinion is the one that really matters? Well, Paul gives scriptural evidence of the point that he is making. Together they illustrate the utter futility of the wisdom of this world. We see this in verse 19b, and this is a quote from Job 5.17. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. This text expresses the imagery of hunting in which the hunter uses the very craftiness of the prey as a means of their capture. The ultimate irony is that people are cunningly avoiding the God with whom they have to answer to, but God has used that very cunning to ensnare them. Verse 20 is from Psalm 94.11. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. This text emphasizes the ultimate futility of those who are wise in their own eyes. God knows their reasonings and has declared that they are completely futile. futile. So who is smarter? Is God smarter or are those who claim to be wise in the wisdom of this world, are they smarter? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And the way we answer that question is going to provide the direction that we are going to follow and figuring out truth as it relates to our spiritual lives. So the obvious point for Paul, therefore, is that the Corinthians themselves are fools if they do not take seriously the spiritual view of life as revealed by God and continue to instead embrace worldly philosophy. Now, the reason that this is so important is because this is is exactly what the Corinthian church is guilty of doing. So now we transition into the second point here in our outline, and that is this, and your allegiance to men. So the addition of human philosophy and worldly wisdom was a big source of division within the church, as was the professed Loyalty to some of the men who were so influential in the church at Corinth. This begins in verse 21a. So then, let no one boast in men. So Paul has spoken very strongly about their allegiances to himself, to Apollos, 
and Peter, and even to a select group who alleged to receive special revelation from Christ, which was not supported by anything that the apostles had taught them during their ministry there. So what Paul has emphasized in this big section about wisdom is simply this. Men are mere servants. Our loyalty is not to the man who teaches. It isn't to the person who writes. It isn't the one that God uses to open our eyes up to spiritual truth. Individuals called by God are nothing apart from the work of grace that God has appointed them to do. So we don't have loyalty to the man who teaches. We have our loyalty to the God who has gifted the man to teach. Since Paul has not identified variations and what these men have taught, and he has not called out any false teachers, the conclusion is very obvious. They taught the same things. And these same truths were meant to be a source of unity within the church, but because of their loyalty, because of the addition of human wisdom, these sources became a point of division amongst them. So the divisions that developed around them were likely based on the people's attraction to their individual style, their personality, and the personal appeal to various Corinthians. Now, I am most certain that you have read authors and you go, you know, I I don't really like the way this guy writes. I mean, I don't disagree with what he says. It just doesn't appeal to me. I am most certain you've heard people speak. And you say, well, I don't disagree with anything that they've said. But it just doesn't appeal to me. That style, the delivery, the way they do what they do, it just doesn't appeal to me. And that's okay. That became a point of contention within the church because some were saying, I belong to Apollos, and some were saying, I belong to Paul, and others were saying, I belong to Peter. And it created division within the church. They were giving greater honor to one another, to one over the other, and this, in addition to the presence of human philosophy and wisdom, was creating significant division within the church. So Paul says, put an end to this human loyalty. Why? Because all things are yours. Verse 21b, for all things belong to you. And I got to tell you, this was a somewhat difficult section of scripture. And it was very surprising to me what this actually means. And I read a large number of comment commentaries and commentators who all batted around the same truth in a variety of ways. So the best way to understand what Paul means And these next three verses is to remember what he has already said. And that's a great reminder to us in general. When we read a verse of scripture, we have to remember the context that it is coming from. Reading what came before it gives us an idea of how we are to understand exactly what is being said. So in chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, Paul provided a proper understanding of the servant's that God has appointed to his work. He gave an agricultural analogy. Do you remember that? He said, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but we are actually nothing because God is the one that caused the growth. We are just servants and the product that is that is created by what we have done belongs to God and to God alone. He also used the analogy of the builder who built on a foundation. And Paul, as a master builder, and presumably Apollos, built upon the same foundation with high-quality materials, 
for the benefit of the Corinthians. All the workers belong to the same project, and the project is owned by God. So what belongs to God as the owner and project supervisor, Paul says, belongs to us. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, let me give you the examples of what of how Paul communicates that truth. And all of these things, all things belong to us. He gives three examples. Letter A. It is the people who lead. So he says, all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the three leading sources of the Corinthian church division. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas didn't create that. The people created it by having a loyalty to one of these individuals. So the Corinthians claim they belong to particular leaders, but Paul uses their words and he redefines what it actually should mean. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas belong to the church because they are building the spiritual temple of the Corinthian church. God's servants are our servants because God has sent them to us for His purposes in accordance with His will. The church is not the property of the apostles. They are simply ministers of the church. And as ministers, they belong to the Corinthians whom they are serving. This is a spiritual truth that human wisdom and philosophy just cannot possibly understand. Another way of saying it is this. A congregation doesn't belong to the pastor. The congregation and the pastor belong to God. We belong to one another. And because we belong to one another, we belong to Him. Now, if that's not amazing enough, Paul goes on and gives this example, letter B. All things belong to us, the powers of life. This was incredible to me. Verse 22b, or the world or life or death. All things belong to us, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. So these three things that Paul mentions here are things that are negative forces that threaten to defeat us. That sound familiar? The world threatens to defeat us. Life threatens to defeat us. The circumstances, everything going around us. Death threatens to defeat us. So the world refers to an organized force which is opposed to God. So to possess the world in the context of what Paul is saying means to be free from its incredibly powerful threat. The message of the gospel is that Christ has defeated the world and in our union with Him, so have we. Because Christ has defeated the world and we are unified in Him, the world is no longer a threat to us. This is what Jesus said in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in, so that in me you, have may, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He's not talking over, he's not talking about overcoming this physical space that we inhabit together. He's not talking about overcoming all of the individual people of the world. He's talking about this force that threatens to defeat us and empower and enslave us. 
Paul will explain this victory later in context of future judgment in 1 Corinthians 7.31b. For the form of this world is passing away. This physical planet that we live on is going to pass away. It is going to be made new when God recreates the world in the fullness of His glory without any presence of sin. 1 Corinthians 11.32 But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The world is that force that opposes God. So we have possessed the world and that it is no longer a threat to us because Christ has overcome the world and in Christ we have also. Now the terms life and death refer to man's existence under the presence and power of sin and his mortality because of sin's consequence. Apart from Christ, our lives are lived under the forces of this world which bring about hopelessness and futility. A life with no meaning, a life with no purpose, the certainty of death with no peace. So this negative force of life and death threatens to destroy any sense of hope or peace that people may have But the gospel changes all of that. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, but when this perishable, this physical life, will put put on the imperishable, our salvation, Christ's righteousness, our union with Him, this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So you see, through our union with Christ, this powerful negative force that Paul refers to as life and death is no longer a negative force for us because it now belongs to us. To possess life and death means to be free from its powerful threat and we are free indeed from this threat through our union with Christ. The third example that Paul gives here, letter C, it is the reality of time. Verse 22c, All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, the world, life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you. So things present refers to the power of this present age. Again, referring to the systems of the dark forces that we live under in this world. This is, this is identified for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against the people of the world, it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This was not done away with when Christ was raised from the dead. It has been done away with for those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ. Even though we still live in this present age, which is incredibly powerfully dominated by sin, we have been set free from that through our union with Christ. The power and presence of sin is very real, and it threatens us, but in Christ... We have been set free from this power and we have the capacity to live victoriously over it. Do you believe that's true? 
Why do we believe that's true? Because that's exactly what Scripture says. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, our salvation, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Now that phrase, things to come, is the only term that Paul uses here that he uses in a consistent, positive way. The world, life, and death, and this present evil age are all ours because of the gift of salvation and the certainty of eternal life. Not hope in the sense of the world, Certainty in the sense of God has promised it. And nothing can negate the promise of God. So why is all of this ours? Why do the pastors and the apostles and the teachers and these negative forces in our world, why do all of these things belong to us? Because of Christ. Verse 23, And you belong to Christ And Christ belongs to God. Our union with Him and His union with the Father gives to us possession of all things. Because, listen, we are His bride singularly. We are His body singularly. Even though there are millions of Christians, there is but a single bride, there is but a single body, and we are promised an inheritance. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. A part of our inheritance in the now is what God has blessed us with in the spiritual places. For God has blessed us with everything in the heavenly places. A part of our inheritance is our present victory over these things while we wait for the final consummation of our salvation when we will experience in reality what is currently ours in our new spiritual position. The Corinthians don't belong to Paul or to Apollos or to Cephas. They belong to Christ which is far better. When Jesus was about to leave this world, when He was preparing His disciples for their apostolic ministry, and when He poured out His heart to the Father and praying the high priestly prayer, as recorded in John 17, He said these words, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours, And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He goes on to say, in verses 21 and 22, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. We are tied together in an eternal oneness with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and thus 
Each of us is tied together with them. How can men who are so much one in Christ be divided? It begins with failure to understand the reality of our spiritual unity in the one who is our possessor. If you don't think oneness and unity is a big deal, you have to remember why Paul was addressing this. The church in Corinth was in shambles over a lack of unity. Jesus prayed in the final recorded prayer that we would be one just as He and the Father are one. And the way you and I experience that oneness and the way we live it out is we recognize this. We all belong to one another because we belong to Him. Now you can say that to somebody who is wise in their own eyes through human wisdom or through human philosophy, and I will guarantee you they will look at you like you're speaking a language they've never even knew existed. The what? The, the, who? I don't understand that at all. Well, right. You can't because it's spiritually appraised. Thinking about this incredible blessing that is a part of our salvation goes way beyond our understanding. I would much rather every person who has ever known me and have in some way been impacted by my teaching or my life or my influence or my something say, I belong to Christ. Not you. I belong to Him, which is far better. Is it not? So no division, because we're unified together. All things are ours in Christ. Let's pray.